Good morning. Good morning. I'm Michael Flake, one of the pastors here. Great to be together as a church family this morning. Whether you're cautious about Jesus, curious about Jesus, or committed to Jesus, there's room for you here. This is a safe place to learn, to grow, and to change. So long as you don't have it all together, you'll fit right in. The round reminds us that we all are active participants as we stay on this journey together. We're all here to receive something this morning. We also all have something to give as we soak in the grace and truth of God's love. We can also pour out love by serving others. Today was, a, a I guess, a mon monumental is too big of a word, a, a new chapter in the life of the church. The 815 service for its first year had been meeting at the Quaker Meeting House across the parking lot. As of today, the 815 service has moved into the Davidson K-8 school, which only goes through sixth grade, but Davidson K-8 school, and into the music room right on the other side of uh, this wall. So that's a, a fun change for us. It gives that 815 service a chance to keep growing, keep making room for one more person. It's, it has been growing since it started a year ago, and so it gives us a chance to, to keep doing that. Uh, and that's a special kind of service. We do communion there and that service every week. So if you'd enjoy that or just like to give it a, give it a try, set the alarm one Sunday. May I recommend the first Sunday of November, in fact. That's Daylight Savings Day. Or but any Sunday. Uh, any Sunday, set the alarm early. Come, come see and see if uh, it's a good fit. But an exciting day for that. One of my favorite shows growing up was a show called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. I don't know if you heard about this show or not. It was called Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. And here's how it would go. The show would start. Mr. Rogers would come in. He's singing the whole time. He'd come in. He'd take off his jacket, put it on a hanger, put on his sweater, zip it all the way up, zip it part of the way back down, take off a dress shoe, put on a sneaker, take off the other dress shoe. This is important. Throw it to the opposite hand and then put on a second sneaker. So I'm four years old. I got a jacket. I got something that zips. I got Velcro sneakers, but I do not have dress shoes. In fact, come to think of it, I still do not have dress shoes. <laughs> Someone at the 815, a little girl said, then buy some. So, uh, so I'd go to my dad's closet and get his dress shoes so I could do the whole walk-in scene with Mr. Rogers. My dad's trying to get ready for work. I'm taking his shoes. So I'd be clomping around the living room trying to, you know, stay in sync with Fred Rogers. I'm going to tell you that that dude is fast. He gets that jacket off. He's zipping and all this. I'm way behind. Then I'd finally get the dress shoe, throw it to the other hand. That never worked. I'd try to Velcro up the old sneakers. Then my dad would come in, look for his dress shoe that's been thrown somewhere in the room, take it, put it on, and go to work. I loved Mr. Rogers' Neighborhood. What I've been intrigued by has been sort of the recent resurgence and in interest in Fred Rogers. There have been like two or three movies about the guy in the last year. It, it's, it's almost like the temper of our society has made us eager to be neighbors again. That, that somewhere in all the, the you know, the, sometimes the pettiness or the rudeness of social media in the, in the personal attack that has become political discourse, somewhere in all that, we sort of look up and go, we have to have been made for something more than this, right? Than person pitted against person and group pitted against group and everybody on your side of the line is evil and everybody on my side of the line is good. 
we, we're, we almost long for someone to swing open the door and say, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood. Now, Fred Rogers uh, was a Christian. Fred understood his world in relation to the Scripture. And, and so, uh, part of what we want to do for the next three weeks is do a series on neighboring, what it means to be a neighbor. In fact, we are not the only church doing this series. There are almost 100 churches throughout greater Charlotte that are going to take the next three weeks and do this series, The Art of Neighboring. I think they'd wanted to get 100 churches to do it, and they got like 93. That's 100-ish. That's not, that's not bad. But So in our region, churches like Grace Covenant, uh, Life Fellowship, Stonebridge, Huntersville Methodist, The Park, University Park Baptist, uh, a number of different churches, all the Lake Forest churches throughout the area doing this series together. The thought being, what would happen if these 100-ish churches took seriously what it meant to be good neighbors? What, what difference might that make in our, in our region? And so, last series that we just finished, we taught on the same book of the Bible nine weeks in a row. We taught through a book of the Bible. I don't remember what book it is because I have two children under three, one of whom did not sleep last night. I think it was Philippians. So, we sort of taught through a book. For the next three weeks, we're going to teach on the same passage each week. We're going to teach on the same passage, the passage you heard earlier, three times to show you there's different ways to get stuff out of the Bible. Sometimes you read through something and get stuff out, but sometimes you can read the same passage multiple times and find layer upon layer upon layer of meaning. And so that passage is Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. Luke chapter 10, verses 25 to 37. So today, I'm going to sort of give a, an overview of that passage try to just hit some of the highlights of it so that over the next two weeks we can come back in and drill down into some of the details of that passage. But if you follow Jesus or if you ever come to follow Jesus, I hope what you see in this passage is the life to which he is calling you. I hope you see it as him calling you into a life bigger than yourself. So it begins in verse 25, on one occasion an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Seems like a good question. So Jesus is out one day, an expert in the law. This means that this man has studied the Old Testament thoroughly. An expert in the law stands up to test Jesus. He says, okay, Mr. Fully God, Mr. Fully Human, let's see how you handle this zinger. What must I do to inherit eternal life? Throws the fastball right at him. Jesus' answer is telling because he doesn't tell anything. Verse 26, what is written in the law, he replied. That's Jesus. What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? Have you ever felt pressure, if you're a Christian, to have a good answer to every Bible question? No matter how hard it may be, you need to have a good answer. Well, I've got good news for you. Jesus did not feel that pressure. When this man asked him a hard Bible question, he responded to the question with a question. What is written in the law? How do you read it? Jesus knew the expert, the reason the expert had asked the question in the first place. So when the expert says, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus says, why don't you tell me? And the expert responds, 
He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied, do this and you will live. So the expert's answer to the question is essentially, love the Lord your God with all you've got. With, with how you use your body, with how you use your brain, deep down in your heart and soul, love the Lord your God with all you've got, and love your neighbor as yourself. Now, where did he come up with such a good answer? Well, it could be that he actually heard Jesus give this same answer to the question before. There are places in the Scripture where Jesus boils down the Old Testament into those two commands. So, it could be that he actually had heard Jesus do this before, he, he's asking a question, he knew how Jesus would respond. The other possibility is that he's studied the Old Testament thoroughly, and both of the verses he said there, both of the statements he said there are verses in the Old Testament. So that could have been his own reflection on how to sort of boil down or make the most sense of the, the writings of the Old Testament. Now, how did I know he had quoted two Old Testament verses, you asked? Did I learn that at seminary? No, I looked at the footnotes in the Bible, and it just listed what the verses were that he was quoting there. So you can do this too. You can study the Bible too. I looked at the footnotes. So the expert summarizes the Old Testament into two commands, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, which is in Deuteronomy, and love your neighbor as yourself, which is in Leviticus. And Jesus hears this, and Jesus agrees. Jesus says, that sounds good to me. If you do that, you will live. An abundant and an everlasting life you will live. Now, I hope this sounds familiar. Well, at the end of a service, I usually give a benediction or a blessing as we go, and I say to love God, love other people, and keep Christ central. You realize I didn't just make that up. I looked at the footnotes. That, that's how Jesus says to make sense of the Scripture. Those are the hooks on which to hang the Scriptures. The love of God with all you have, the love of neighbor as self, and keeping Christ central. Verse 29, but he, the expert, wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, and who is my neighbor? So this is not going quite how the expert thought it was going to go, so he decides to move to plan B. He says, well, okay, then answer me this, who is my neighbor? There is a lot of white space in the Bible. Like the Bible says, love your neighbor, but then it doesn't say who your neighbor is. Or the Bible says, help those in need, but then it doesn't give like a percentage of median income of what that means. The Bible says to be honest in, in your dealings, but it doesn't say exactly where that line is. Is an, om, an omission honest? Is it? it would be so much easier if the Bible would just tell us exactly what to do in every situation. That would be so much easier. That would mean we didn't have to think. But, but that's not how the Bible works. There's a lot of white space in the Bible so that you and I have to think. And the expert tells Jesus... Help me fill in the detail. Who is my neighbor? Can you color in some of the white space for me? Who is my neighbor? In response to that question, Jesus tells a story. Jesus tells a parable, in fact. A parable is a story uh, that's made up to make a point, to make the point 
memorably. This parable is often called the parable of the Good Samaritan. Even if you don't know much about the Bible, you have probably heard the phrase, a Good Samaritan. So that's the parable that Jesus is about to to tell. In fact, our church just helped start a Spanish-speaking church in Huntersville called El Buen Samaritano, the Good Samaritan. So if you have ever used the phrase, a good Samaritan, but you have not paid God royalties, God has the trademark on that phrase. If you have ever used that phrase and not paid God royalties, we are going to take an offering up here in a few minutes, trying to keep you out of legal trouble. And if the offering goes really well, maybe I can buy some dress shoes. We'll see. We will see. I bring all this up to say that even if you are, are a Christian, you've been a Christian for a while, you know or are familiar with the parable of the Good Samaritan, remember this is not a parable Jesus just said one day out of nowhere. The parable of the Good Samaritan is a direct response to a question. And the question is, who is my neighbor? So the parable begins. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he was attacked by robbers. They stripped him of his clothes, beat him, and went away, leaving him half dead. So that's a bad situation, but it's the sort of thing that could happen on this road from uh, Jerusalem to Jericho. It was a very hard, rocky, steep, dangerous sort of road. So this man is left lying half dead on the side of the road, and as Jesus continues, a religious leader comes, he sees the man, he moves to the other side of the road, and he keeps going. Then another religious leader comes, sees the man laying half dead, moves to the other side of the road, keeps going. The religious leaders are 0 for 2 at this point. And then the dying man hears a sound. Clip-clop, clip-clop, clip-clop. Clip-clop. We learn in verse 33, a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was. And when he saw him, he took pity on him. So now Jesus introduces a new character, a Samaritan, who we later learn has a donkey, and they are traveling along this same road. Now it's important to see what Jesus is doing here. Because remember, he is responding to the question, who is my neighbor? The person who asked the question is a religious leader. And so what does Jesus do in the parable? He makes the religious leaders the no-goods. And then he makes a Samaritan the hero. Now, if you're a religious leader in this day and time, that would be hard to swallow. Because, there's a couple reasons at least, Samaritans were... uh, part Jewish, but part not Jewish. So there's an ethnic difference that caused a lot of uh, uh, discomfort in that day. The other reason that they might have is that the Samaritans worshipped differently than, than most of the Jewish people did, in fact, in ways that those Jewish religious leaders would not have thought acceptable. And so if you're a religious leader in that day and time, the Samaritans are the no-goods. Now, you can spiritualize that up in flowery language all you want, but the Samaritans are the no-goods. And here Jesus is making the Samaritan the hero and making the religious leaders the no-goods. It's always made me wonder how the parable would be different if Jesus had told it at a different time and a different place.
Like, like if Jesus were to come, you know, today and, and tell this parable at a, a for instance, like a, a Donald Trump rally, would he make the, uh, the Samaritan an immigrant? Or if he were to go and tell this parable at a Bernie Sanders rally, would he make the Samaritan someone from a Donald Trump rally? Or, or if he were to come and tell the parable to you, who would he put in place of the Samaritan? If he came and told me the parable, who would he put in place of the Samaritan? If he came to our church and told this parable, who would he put in the place of the Samaritan? Do you see that this is not like a cute little story anymore? Je Jesus is trying to step on this guy's toes a little bit. Jesus, as we used to say in Memphis, is getting up in his grill a little bit. He's getting up in your grill a little bit, my grill a little bit. He's questioning if the world is as clean and neat and easy to categorize as we want it to be. So he continues, the, the Samaritan went and to him and bandaged his wounds, poured oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, that's like two days wage. He took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So the Samaritan sees the dying man on the side of the road. He has pity on him. He has compassion on him. It starts as a feeling, but it doesn't stay a feeling. It moves into action. He cares for the dying man. He puts him on his donkey. And so the Samaritan walks the hard road from Jerusalem to Jericho because the dying man cannot walk it. And then he takes him to an inn, and he agrees to foot the bill for the man's care before the final expense number is even known. Jesus never tells us if the half-dead man recovered, because his point here is not the end result. His point, his major focus is the Samaritan man who came across a stranger half-dead on the side of the road and showed him a profound level of mercy. So wrapping up, Jesus looked back to the expert and said, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? There's another question. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. So Jesus has flipped this whole encounter on its head. Jesus is saying uh, to, to this man who kind of came to him for an answer, we think, Jesus kind of gives him an answer, mostly by asking him questions and telling him a story, and then he leaves him with a challenge. Jesus is saying to this expert in the law, you're trying to define who a, your neighbor is, and I'm telling you to be a neighbor. You're trying to define what mercy is, and I'm telling you to have mercy and to show mercy. You came to me wanting answers to your intellectual questions, but you already have the answers. You already have the knowledge that you need. Now, that's not true for some of us. It was true for this religious leader. Some of us are very new to this. We need to keep growing up in our knowledge of the things of God. That's a good thing. But the truth is, some of us have the knowledge that we need. It, it, and it's about beginning to act on what we already know. 
That's one of the points I think Jesus was trying to make to this religious leader by asking him question after question. I'm not teaching you anything here. I'm just trying to force it down <laughs> out of your brain. So, so that's the parable. That's the whole encounter. It's the parable, but the, the precursor is important because he's answering a question with the parable. So we'll study this two more times over the next two weeks. But before we do, before I wrap up our first sermon on it, I just want to make clear two of the major points of, of the whole passage, and they are these. Jesus is inviting us to imagine and create a world in which, number one, number one, number, 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 number one, strangers become neighbors. Strangers become neighbors. Jesus is inviting us to imagine and create a world in which strangers become neighbors. That's what happens in the parable. The lives of two strangers collide, and by the end of the passage, they are neighbors. Now, in our day and time, we have the ability to be a good neighbor to people all around the world. And that's a good thing. That's part of why we wanted Tiffany to share on behalf of Access to Success today. Our church takes that seriously. At the same time, it is possible in trying to be a good neighbor to the whole world that you and I begin to overlook the strangers with whom we interact regularly. What about being a good neighbor to the strangers who live in the house or the apartment or the dorm room to our left and our right? What about being good neighbors to the strangers who work in the office or the store to our left and to our right? What about being a good neighbor to the strangers who sit at the desks to our left and to our right? By God's grace, with God's help, you and I are invited to help create a world where strangers become neighbors. And why? Why is Jesus so emphatic in, in seeing strangers become neighbors? Well, that gets us to number two, number two, number, number, number. People love sermons with only two points. Number two, Jesus is inviting us to imagine and create a world in which mercy is shown. Mercy is shown. So strangers become neighbors and mercy is shown. Not just felt, but shown. Not just contemplated, but actually extended. By God's grace, with God's help, we can become the people, people who show mercy, who show kindness to those who once were strangers but have become our neighbors. And in fact, when, when we show mercy or kindness or love to people who are our neighbors and not just strangers, it actually, that's actually a good thing. It's a better thing because we know something about that person. We know how to show them love in a way they'll actually receive as love. We know how to help a person in a way that will actually be helpful. When we show mercy to neighbors instead of simply showing mercy to strangers. So this is the question I want to, this is like my last question. I'm going to end with a challenge. Jesus ended with a challenge, so I can't much end with a question. I'm going to end with a challenge. But here's the question I want to use to get to the challenge. The question that I just want to reflect on you with is this one. Is mercy a virtue or a vice? 
is mercy a virtue or a vice? And the reason I ask this is over the last 100 years, there's been sort of a big ongoing debate about that question, really 150 years. Is mercy a good thing or a bad thing? Is it a virtue or a vice? And, and you can have your beliefs on that. I'm just going to tell you the Bible's answer is very clear. According to the Scripture, mercy is a virtue. Mercy is a good thing. And part of why mercy is a good thing is that you and I need mercy. You have needed and I have needed mercy in the past. We need it in the present. We will need it in the future. We need mercy to be a virtue because we will need mercy. When I first hear the parable of the Good Samaritan, I think to myself, okay, I'm supposed to be the Samaritan. I'm going to go out after church today. I'm going to buy a donkey, and I'm going to be ready to help. Just bring them on. Your car's broken down the side of the road? Get off my donkey. We're going to the hospital. I wonder, though, if we might be able to make more sense of the parable by not immediately jumping to, I'm supposed to be the Samaritan. I think that's part of the point. But what if we first considered that you and I have a lot in common with the guy left for dead on the side of the road? For example, Ephesians 2.4 says, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. The Bible's point is that apart from God, we are dead, that God is the source of life, and as we disconnect ourselves from the source of life, we are dead. In other words, we are the person on the side of the road. We are the one in the poor situation that we cannot rescue ourselves from, and so we sit and wait, hoping someone is going to come. We sit and wait and listen, hoping that at some point someone will come by us who will show us mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy. Clip-clop, clip-clop, clip-clop clip-clop. Titus 3.3 says that at one time we too were foolish, disobedient. We were deceived and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. In other words, you're the, one, you're the guy on the side of the road. I'm the guy on the side of the road. Left for dead until someone would come and save us and rescue us. Until someone would come and start to bandage up our wounds, would start to heal our wounds. Unless somebody would be willing to walk the hard road because we couldn't so that we didn't have to. So that ultimately someone will be willing to pay the, the cost of our, our redemption, our restoration. And truth be told, you don't want to know how much it costs. I don't know that you and I could fathom how much it costs. Our rescuer is not anonymous. His name is Jesus. He lived, He died, He resurrected so that you and I can live 
free and forgiven and forever. He has shown you and shown me mercy upon mercy upon mercy upon mercy in a situation that we could not have solved ourselves. And He says to us, now go and do likewise. And so the challenge I want to leave with with you that's very similar to the challenge uh, that will be shared in those hundred-ish churches throughout this series is this. Identify three to five strangers that could become neighbors and look for ways to show them mercy. Identify three to five strangers that could become neighbors and look for ways to show them mercy. For being part of this All City series, we got some magnets. And at the top they say, who is my neighbor? Now, it looks like a, a tic-tac-toe board. I'll have you know this is not a tic-tac-toe board, though it could easily double as a tic-tac-toe board. But it's like a magnet thing. You stick on something that'll, you know, a magnet will stick on. And, and there, there's a middle space. You're the middle space. It says you are here. But then it leaves eight blank spaces with the question, who is my neighbor? So we have these at the info table. We have these at a table up in the lobby. We also have dry erase markers that you can take with you. Uh, so, so, you you know, you're without excuse to be able to write something on this. But we invite you to take one of these and to begin to ask that question. Strangers who could become neighbors. Eight, eight slots. Strangers who could become neighbors and look for ways to show mercy. Now, you notice I started at three to five, but there's eight slots, you say, eight little boxes. Why did you say three to five? Well, because it's a three-week series. I got to leave you some openings, because as we keep going through this passage, you may start to hear different things, be drawn to different things. For instance, next week, we're going to talk a little bit about how need factors into Jesus' definition of a neighbor. So, so as you keep, you, you keep growing and learning through this series, uh, so I'm just saying three to five. Start at three to five and be open to how the rest of the series and the parable of Jesus will keep shaping your thought on that question, who is my neighbor? Well, I encourage you to pick one of these up. Begin to think three to five strangers who could become neighbors and look for ways to show mercy. Are you doing this so that God will love you more? No, 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 no. This is a response to Jesus who has shown you mercy upon mercy upon mercy and ended the parable by saying, now go and do likewise. We were once strangers from God, but through Jesus we are invited to be God's neighbors, God's friends. Let's pray together. Let me give you a chance to pray, to talk to God, to listen to God about whatever He's stirring up in your heart or in your mind. Just take a quiet moment for personal prayer.
Lord, I do thank you for our congregation. I thank you for each person gathered here today. I thank you for the work you're doing in each of our lives. Whether we see it clearly or don't see it clearly. I thank you that you want something more for us. And so I pray for each one of us. I pray for these hundred congregations participating together in this. I pray that as we each take steps to follow your teaching, to be good neighbors, to extend mercy, I pray that as we do it, you would take all those little efforts and, and make it something more beautiful than all the little efforts put together. Something winsome, something that makes clear to the people of our region that uh, Christians do love and care about the people of this world. Lord, I also pray for those of us who maybe for the first time have realized we have a lot in common with the person left for dead on the side of the road. I pray that we would look up and see the eyes of Jesus, the extended reach of Jesus reaching down to pick us up, to walk the hard road so that we don't have to, because we can't. And Lord, I pray we would respond to that sort of generosity, that sort of mercy, that sort of love by opening up our lives to you, allowing you to come in, allowing you to have control, allowing you to set the agenda, to redecorate, to throw out what needs to be thrown out and to bring in what needs to be brought in. And so, Lord, maybe some of us, as we step over this line of faith, one of the first things we will do is to be a good neighbor to someone in Jesus' name. We do pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.